Matthew 13, 53-58. Okay, let's read. When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. This is the blind leading the blind here. <laughs> oh, thank you. He went away from there, verse 4, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And said, "What? where did this man get this wisdom in these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? It's not his mother called Mary, and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And, not, and are not all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is without honor except in his hometown and in his own, in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Well, one of the most profound and yet... Most understated questions that Jesus ever asked was found in Matthew chapter 13, verse 51. Do you understand these things? On the surface of what he taught, we can answer with the disciples, yes, we understand that. This is obvious, as Rod pointed out last week. What's valuable in those parables? The treasure and the pearl. No problem, says the person who is raised in church and heard this a million times. Do we really understand the value of the great treasure that Jesus was talking to us about in parabolic form? And of course we say yes. The treasure is priceless in the parables, but that's not the point that Jesus is making. The ultimate point of this is that the kingdom of God is just like that treasure and that pearl. And so with that being said, the question has to be asked again. Do we really understand these things? Do we really grasp the value of the kingdom of God? And I want to speak affirmatively to us in that way. But unfortunately, the text doesn't do that. So notice with me. As we've already read Matthew fifteen or Matthew thirteen fifty three through fifty eight, which we already read. So, um, the crowd here was amazed on two fronts with Jesus. His teaching was nothing like they'd ever heard before, um, as we have elsewhere. It says that he spoke with one who had authority, not like those in the synagogues. He performed these unexplainable miracles and acts. As highlighted there in verse 54, for many, not in Nazareth, for many, it, this propelled faith in Jesus as Messiah. They saw the works, they saw the things that he taught, and there was no doubt. And in fact, in, in John 5, if you want to turn there, you can. John 5, verse 36, 
he talks about the importance of this in his discussion with the Pharisees, with the Jews, on the witnesses that were set up to testify to him. Notice with me John 5, uh, 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, which is huge because they believed that John the Baptist was a, uh, a prophet. Um, they had no doubt that the crowds loved John the Baptist. And Jesus is saying, I have something greater than that. He says, for the works that the Father has given me, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So for him, uh, a rejection of those works was not good. However, uh, we can't explain Nazareth's amazement through a lens of belief, but rather their unbelief. Here's what I mean, and if you'll notice with me back in Matthew 13, uh, 55 and 56, listen to what they say. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where did, where then did this man get all of these things? So, uh, rather than looking upon Jesus and believing, there is their dang, their their amazement is couched in the most dangerous response to Jesus that is known to man, and that is familiarity without faith. I mean, they know his profession. They know his mom. They know his family. In other words, who they thought he was was very foreign from who he was claiming to be. And for them, they couldn't put it together. Listen to some of their reasoning. They couldn't figure out that the Messiah to come was the one who grew up around them. The Messiah figure was supposed to be shrouded in mystery, not familiarity. The Messiah was to be a powerful political figure, not an everyday problem. The same guy who's going to rule and reign with the Iron Scepter cannot be the guy who fixes cattle panels and yokes and sheep pens. And we know his mom. Wasn't she the one who showed up after he was born? With some kind of complex about his greatness. And she, you remember her saying all of that, storing all of these things in her heart, right? Okay. Um, and she named him Savior. I mean, that ought to be a, that ought to be a, a clue right there. I mean, the, 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 the nickname of Christ, Jesus, from his dad was, as told by the angel, as we know in Matthew, Emmanuel, God with us. Jeez, uh, you almost kind of feel sorry. Everybody knows somebody who the kids don't know what happened to the parents before, you know, and everybody else in the community does except for him. That, that's kind of how you see Jesus, how they saw him. Um, there's no way. There's no way the Messiah can't have a proper father. Messiah had to be born from, from he, they had to know who the dad was, and they weren't sure who the dad was. He left for a little while, comes back with a ragtag group of believers. 
who are these guys? Other Galileans? Oh, for crying out Oh, you know, he could have went to Jerusalem to find some believers. He had to go to Galilee. Yeah, nobody likes this. Yeah, and tax collectors and zealots. I mean, where did he get these guys? Um, straight laced, right? Goody two shoes. Can't have it any different. Besides, we know his. We know his family. We know his. We, I mean, if you're going to pull the shroud off, talk to the siblings, right? Everybody knows that. When push comes to shove, we'll throw the oldest child under the bus every time, won't we? We will, yeah. My brother, he got to sleep in the back seat while my sister and I had to sit in the middle seats. <laughs> throw him under the bus, right? So this was the perfect child, the consummate child. Everybody liked him. He never got a spanking. We know that, right? Because mom and dad treated him different than, than everybody else. Yeah, that's right. Never argued, never struggled with them and their principal authority. And other than, you know, the case in, in Luke 12 where, you know, he goes to the temple and they can't find him. We we're figuring, trying to figure out where he's at and what's he doing. He's being pious. Okay, right. He's being about, he's going about his father's business, whatever that's supposed to be. Besides, we know Jesus this is Jesus is a nobody. I mean, look at what Nathaniel said. Well, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Especially the Messiah. Jesus the carpenter went to the same school with our kids. Yeah, I mean, think about this. He he was he went to the same school as everybody else around here. There's no way that we accept him as our Messiah. We'll accept, I mean, look, we were with the Jesus, the growing up Jesus, and we were with uh, the domestic Jesus. But we will never receive Christ. We'll never receive Jesus as Messiah. He will never be Messiah Jesus. Lastly, they went, uh, lastly, they really want to know where he got all these things. And just... Think about what they had to assume about Jesus in order to come to that conclusion. Everything he has done must come from outside of himself. That's their conclusion. While he was gone, he ran into a conjurer of cheap tricks or some off-the-wall guru, and now he's fooling everyone. Don't worry. The ever-suspecting Nazarenes have him all figured out. Rather than being propelled to believe in him, to believe his claims, their conclusions leave them in complete and utter unbelief. So verse 57 here interprets their amazement for us, doesn't it? They were offended by these things. They were so sure that their interpretation of Jesus was correct, that being offended was the only conclusion they could come to in light of the teachings of Jesus. And the result, Jesus refused to allow the benefits of faith to be shared with an unbelieving city. 
Matthew seems to indicate that unbelief stifles the work of God. And not just the run of the mill unbelief, but the unbelief that runs alongside the danger of faithless familiarity. If you're familiar with Jesus, but you don't know him, he's not going to do amazing things in your life. So their unbelief glared at them because they already knew him. Nazareth was so acquainted with Jesus that their hardness was readily apparent. So John Gill says, Mark, in his gospel, says he could not do many miracles. And he says, not for want of power, or as if their unbelief was too mighty for them, for him to overcome. Because that would really not portray Christ very accurately. But he would not, because he judged them unworthy, and that it was not fit and convenient to perform any more. Remember, we talked about him not being, you know, a hired monkey here. Since they were offended with what was done and that their condemnation might not be increased, as we saw when Jesus sent out the twelve, Pastor John was talking about that. And he goes to these cities and the condemnation of these cities is greater because of the testimony of Jesus. So in other words, it was merciful on his part not to perform many miracles and only increase the condemnation on the ones he loves severely. He's faced with unbelief. What does he do? Yeah. He's going to act mercifully. And he acts mercifully in Nazareth of all places. Four things. Well, there's five. Five was a late addition. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't know how this was going to go today at all. So five is... I love that you read from the book that Nikki found. That's great. So number one, let's we'll start with number one. How badly have we separated the material from the spiritual? Jesus' parables are meant to rock our material world, not just the spiritual understanding. In fact, if they hadn't rocked our material world, then they really haven't done anything for us spiritually. Have you ever met someone who sold all their possessions because of how connected they are to what is spiritual and eternal? You know, anybody that has actually, other than, we just saw a video of the damagers. They sold everything for the sake of the gospel. Ever met somebody that's sold everything for the sake of the gospel? What's wrong with us? You know what? We're blind to this. We're blind to materialism in our society. Secondly, what does spiritual blindness actually look like? Never, no matter what, even in the face of eternal separation from God and hell, never take Jesus at his word. Never. Find an elaborate way around what he says or just ignore him. I I have cited here John 3.16. How many of you know who said John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Who said that? I've, I've asked it to churches and it's like crickets. I actually heard somebody say Jesus. Yeah, Jesus said that. And who did he say it to? Nicodemus. <laughs> what have we done to John 3.16? We put it on a pedestal. We've elevated that to the highest point and all around it. We don't, we don't know what the verses are around. And, and surprisingly enough, most churches don't know who said it or who they or. For bonus points, who he even said it to. Thank you, Ramsey Creek, for not being quite 
normal. All right? Reality is most people don't know who said John 3.16. Why have we done that? Why is that the case? We have been, we've taught and been taught to strip verses out of the context. No, you're not condemned. You're not condemned because you're condemned already. That's John 3.18. It's too late. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. He didn't need to. It was already condemned. If you don't look to him for, for salvation, you're lost. You will perish. Or, worse, we expert ourselves in, in his ability to forgive, but have no clue what sanctification actually is. I mean, we talk about, oh, just call the name of the Lord Jesus. Who's that? You'll be saved. For hours, that Philippian jailer, which is where that is found, he sat there and he listened to the hymns of Paul and Silas for hours. And what are those hymns rich with? They're rich with the gospel. Man, so to hear, just call on Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, no problem. That Philippian jailer knew because he'd heard the gospel. And we tend to jump to just call on Jesus and have no idea who Jesus is. It's okay. I've heard people say before, it's okay. I'm going to do this. I know it's wrong. I know it's wrong, but God's going to forgive me. No, you have missed forgiveness. That is not grace. Sanctification, we, we think that's a foreign word. You know, when you come to Christ, you're supposed to be different. Now, if you believe the gospel that's not in this Bible, you're going to continue living life however you want to live it. But according to the biblical gospel, you can't live the same way. Third, if you, it needs to be stated, if you've been raised in the church and grown up around the familiar teachings of Jesus and all the stories in the New Testament, and it's never, ever taken hold of you, then you're not saved. Is that clear enough? Familiarity does not equal faith. Just because you're familiar with the teachings of Jesus, just because you're familiar with the stories of Jesus, does not mean you have faith in Jesus. Saving faith. Listen to Charles Leiter. And I would encourage anybody, if you're struggling with this, I've I've listened to the sermon, just so you know that I'm not just preaching this to the choir and preaching it to me. I've listened to Charles Leiter dozens of times in this sermon called Superficial Faith. He says, there was a student who was the head of a campus group in Kirksville. This is close to home. Leiter assumed that she was a Christian. When she came back from the summer, because she started getting involved in their church at the end of the year, I asked her how her time was in the Word. She said she really didn't read the Bible during the summer. And as we talked, a few more things came out. Now, this girl who is head of a Christian campus organization I found out she was living with her boyfriend. The more we talked, I began to realize that this girl's lost. She wanted to join the Peace Corps, and when she found out that it's not really a Christian thing, decided she wanted to be a missionary. I pressed to give her life to God instead. Don't just be Jane the philanthropist or Jane the missionary, and in light of that, she said, 
She wanted to be a missionary more than she wanted to be a Christian. Isn't that amazing? She came back a week or two later and said she had no assurance. And I said, you won't until you release the thing you hold on to the most. And her response was she had let go of that. Rather than leading her in a prayer, I talked to her more and exhorted her to seek the Lord. I said, go put yourself on God's doorstep and cry out to him for mercy until he has mercy on that was a Sunday night. The next day, our doorbell rang, and my wife opened up uh, opened up the door, and Jane said, I'm saved, I'm saved. Now, what happened? Jesus committed himself to her. He really came. He really does that. He really does commit himself to those who believe on him. And then fourth, what will you do with Jesus? I'd like to say there's a good outcome for those of you who have a familiarity with Jesus, but without faith. I really honestly think the story I just shared with you is a rare thing. It's a rare thing. The only two records of the two towns, we only have two records of two towns that tried to kill Jesus. And one was Jerusalem, and they were successful at some point. The other, sadly, was Nazareth. Luke tells us, when they heard these things, all in the synagogues were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. Unbelief eventually will do everything in its power to silence Christ. And then, of course, I knew a month ago that I was preaching Mother's Day. So I had a number five late yesterday, um, emailed to the guys and let them know, and so here it is. Number five, a word to mothers. Motherhood is awesome. And, and I don't, <laughs> that's so cliche. I mean, when you stop and think about motherhood, awesome does fit, doesn't it? Filled with awe. Like, how did that just happen? The calling to motherhood is equal to the work of missionaries. So, again, I love this because I did not read what he's going to read. So, so the, the calling to motherhood is equal to the work of missionaries who hear the calling to take the gospel to the other side of the planet. Those are equivalent. You don't have to go to the other side of the planet. Praise God for those that do. Again, Jamie and Aaron. But to just take those few steps... From the door to the crib, that's huge. That's huge. However, motherhood has a slippery slope. And it's right here, and it's within these walls. On one side, it's laden with assumptions. We've surrendered parenting to professionals. Wrong, wrong, wrong. We no longer parent as we should. Rather, we are creators of environments only. They go to a good church. They go to a good school. They go to good extracurricular activities. Our home life, it's suitable. And so we assume, based on all of these influences, that children will turn out right. And that's wrong. On the other side of this slippery slope, 
is parenting through driving force. The parent becomes the decision maker of the child's spiritual well-being. We think that if we just get them to make a decision for Christ, then we've got them for all eternity. Yet somewhere in the middle, somewhere between these very slippery slopes, is a tightrope called biblical motherhood. Strive, mothers, to set a good example and make good decisions and, and, and fix good environments. But remember that none of those are the gospel. Yet, we need to preach the gospel to our children daily, not by forcing them into a decision, but helping them to see how valuable God is. Be willing to admit that a grown and fruitless child may be a lost child. The tests of true faith found in 1 John are the same across the board, where there's no love of the gospel or God or others or the body of Christ, there's no salvation. May we be unafraid to speak, to let Jesus speak his truth into the lives of our children in God's time and not our own time. And let me just testify. There, there is no, there are no bounds to this. Tests are tests. If you fail the test, you're not saved. If you pass the test, then praise God. When, when I was growing up, in, I think it was probably junior high, I was, I was fat. Fatter, I don't know, fatter, I'm sitting around all week, I'm gaining weight, fatter than I am now. And I was made fun of by kids that went to church for being fat. <laughs> you know what's crazy? I didn't care. You know why? Because I was with the people of God. And I, as a kid, I, I couldn't tell you that. I just know that my joy was never stifled because of unregenerate children in my church. And Dad bought me a Bible when I was, it was on Mark 2014, it's an NIV. And this thing is just, it's so tattered. It's so, well, I don't use it anymore because of how nasty it got. I don't even let my girls use it because of how bad a shape it's in. And all those years of doubting and struggling, not knowing, and John says, here I am. I was, I was, 14, I was 13, I hadn't turned 14 yet, and I had this Bible. And I wore this thing out cover to cover. That's not a testimony of how good Jason is. That is a testimony of God's grace. Because John tells us we'll love the things that he says. We'll love his commands. And you've got grown children that don't go to church and don't love the people of God and don't love God and don't love the commands of God. It's okay to just admit they need Christ. And not say, well, they were baptized when they were kids. Who cares? And I said, look, I just baptized her last week. You know what? You're secure in Christ if you belong to Christ. It doesn't matter whether you get dunked or not. It does not matter. My sheep hear my voice. And they follow me. Let's pray. Lord God, all of this belongs to you. And, and I think that's it's a hard thing to admit that I'm, I'm, I'm really just a foster parent. 
These children, they belong to you. You're their king. And so I, I pray for them. I pray for my wife. To have the strength each day to proclaim all over again the glories of the cross. And I pray, Father, for each child in this room that does not know you. As much as I, I, I ask, Lord, that you would own them, that you would be their redeemer, I lift up every mom in this room. It is so true that the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Oh, God. May we see our calling today. In Jesus' name.